It wasn't until speaking with my expert today that I realized intervention-type therapies require the sober people to relive their worst experiences with a loved one without being offered any help in return. It's honestly so one-sided that I have a hard time even coming up with a clever analogy. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Dana Killian. Dana was married to a severe addict for 25 years before he finally walked the road to recovery. But that didn't solve all their problems. It's no surprise that addiction leads to lying, stealing, and many other unsavory behaviors. However, no amount of sobriety is going to make those things unhappen. Listen along as we explore how sobriety can break a relationship or a partner. Let's make sure we look after ourselves. Welcome to the show, Dana Killian. Hi, Colton. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? Certainly. So I'm Dana Killian. I am author of a number of books. My, my current book is a memoir called Where the Shadows Dance. He got sober, I got broken. And it discusses the aspect of addiction that we don't often discuss, which is what it's like to be on the sidelines as someone you love is self-destructing. Yeah. And it's certainly a great title. It's very evocative to say like, I broke during this process. Yeah. I think that having been the one on the sidelines, um, I've been through the addiction treatment center process. I've been through the therapy process. And one of the common aspects to traditional treatment of addiction is that those of us that are on the sidelines are kind of ignored. We're certainly vital in, in getting the sober party to see the light, to see that they have a problem. But the idea that we might have some emotional issues to deal with ourselves is often ignored. So yes, that's kind of, I think I was in that process myself. When you, when you are um, married to a, an addict, alcoholic in this case, your life really revolves around addiction. And your whole focus is on what do I do to get this man that I love help to get him to see the problem. And what we're not doing in that process is recognizing what's happening with us. We think it's just all going to be fine if he gets sober. And that's not the case. There is damage. Yeah. And there is a lot of this, you know, the way we look at addiction is we're like, oh, well, they're a victim of their addiction. But in that, like you said, you know, we don't really give space for the people in that addict's lives to, you know, voice their their concerns, what they're going through, because they also, you know, are at least sharing in this experience. There was a an instance where I was brought into therapy with my husband's therapist, my former husband at this point. And my role in that was really to, as I explained how I was impacted, the role there wasn't for me to get help. My role was to serve as the, the wake-up call, if you will, 
so that my husband could see what he was doing to me. And therefore, maybe that would get through to him in a different way. So I was kind of like the gut punch. I was there to be a teaching aid for my husband. And while that's an important part of it, it really is fairly dismissive of the role that those of us on the sidelines have. And quite frankly, pretty dismissive, I think, of what the whole addiction thing means, where it comes from, what's behind it, and the complexity of the disease itself. And it doesn't really matter so much whether the addiction is alcohol. Um, you know, there are all kinds of things that one can be addicted to. But, um, you know, I speak pretty specifically about addiction that is not, for instance, a prescription painkiller that is naturally addictive. I'm, I'm, you know, my experiences with alcohol and other addictions that, in my opinion and my experience with it, there's usually a psychological issue, whole um, something going on behind the, the foundation of that addiction that is bringing this all to the surface. And the addiction then, the substance is really a tool for the addict to hide and to deny a problem, distract from a problem, numb a problem, numb how they're feeling about themselves. And we don't talk about that a whole lot either. And I think that's important to understand in all of this. So let's kind of run through this, you know, where this whole situation started with your ex-husband and how it all formed and how that went. So it was a difficult thing. We were married for a long time, 25 years. And he was likely an addict before I married him, but I didn't know it. One, I didn't have a lot of experience with alcoholism. I had not had any personal experience. I simply had what we think of as stereotypical behaviors in my mind. So slurring and stumbling and job loss and car accidents. That wasn't the behavior that I saw in my marriage. My former husband was a high functioning alcoholic and I didn't really know that that could be a problem. That could be uh, something that went together. He wasn't having trouble on the job. He wasn't exhibiting any of these behaviors, but the drinking was a pattern and he would pass out. Um, there were other behaviors along the way, but they were mild things that we could really chalk up to. Is it normal drinking? Is it a rough day? Um, those kinds of things that aren't really clear. What is the distinction between drinking even heavy drinking and problem drinking. That only became clear over time. And it became clear over time, not because the behavior in him changed so much, but as I started to be concerned about it and wanted to talk to him about what was going on and questioning him about it, while he acknowledged that perhaps there was some behaviors that weren't so good going on with alcohol. There was always an excuse. There was always, a, I'll try. There was, you know, rough day, stress, normal things. Most of us drink a bit and we do use alcohol as a buffer for those days. But over time, what happened? The more I was pressuring, the more I would see that the booze was coming back, the more I would see that the booze was coming back more frequently and our conversations would get more frequent and more 
firm, if you will, consequences started to be an aspect of our conversations. That's when drinking became a hidden thing. That is when I knew finally that this was not something I could chalk up to just a rough day or heavy drinking or drinking that was just different than mine. When someone is lying about their alcohol consumption, whether they've been drinking at all, there is a problem. And that is something that we have to understand and not minimize. And that's something that I would encourage anyone who has someone in their lives that they're concerned about, really look very closely for. Is this person that you care about minimizing, lying, and hiding their drinking? That is a sign that this is not normal behavior. Certainly. And how was kind of how long was each of these periods like between, you know, getting married and then having that first major discussion where you're like, hey, you're kind of drinking a lot. I would say, you know, memory serves. It's probably about three years before I really started recognizing that passing out was not something that one does on a routine basis. And I felt the need to have some conversations and to dig into what was going on with him a little bit more. The process of addiction and uncovering addiction and going through these conversations with your loved one, it is not linear. It is a one step forward, two steps backwards. We would go through periods of time that would be two, three months long where there was no obvious drinking or alcohol consumption involved, but eventually he was always back at it. And that too is part of the pattern and something that we as loved ones need to watch for if we are concerned about someone in our life who is who may have a problem with alcohol. And that's one of those that when you hear people say like, well, I would know if they had a problem. Because yeah. you're like, I was married. And then several years into this before I was like, oh, I think we have a problem. Like that's a pretty intimate relationship to say, like, it's definitely not that easy to just see it. And when you get to the stage in our situation, anyway, when he got to the stage where the drinking was hidden, I wasn't seeing him drink. So I'm in that place of waking up in the middle of the night and smelling the booze as it metabolized in his body. Um, I'm seeing the glassy eyes. So even that behavior with alcohol, it's not always about getting drunk. It does not have to be about the quantity, but it can be with some individuals that need for the steady buzz. And that's where my former husband was. He needed the steady buzz. And he also had a tremendous tolerance for alcohol. So he could have had quite a bit. And what's the difference between falling asleep at the end of a hard day and passing out? It's a thin line to be aware of, and we don't always see it, even though we're living with that person. And was there some you know, underlying reason that he didn't want to work through or he wasn't sharing with you that you know, was the reason he was drinking so often? I think that is the heart of getting through to any alcoholic. They generally can't tell you. There will be language when we would bring it up, when there would be an issue. And these are minimizing conversations about, well, you know, this and this and this are going on. It's, I got a lot going on. It's stress. It's, I'm entitled to a drink after work. 
And, and those are minimizing behaviors that are extremely common with addicts. Addicts don't really get to the place where they understand what is behind their need to drink for a very, very, very long time. Some never get there. Some can talk about the, the physical need for it. Many can't even talk about the physical need. There is this game that the alcoholic plays in their mind because they don't really want to admit that they've got a problem because then they have to face it. And that means the booze, the substance that they depend on goes away. And therefore their version of themselves, their internal sense of who they are is then challenged. They do not want to admit that they have a problem. Even at times later in the disease, when they're at the point of using language around it, there still is a great deal of denial of the extent of the problem, and most importantly, their ability to control it. Well, and I have to assume there was this point somewhere in the middle where you had to kind of struggle with, you know, like it's being hidden from you. And you're like, is it so critical that I bring it up and add this challenge to a relationship, you know, that I just don't think we need versus like how much I care about this person. I don't want to be hidden because I know it's harming them. And so that's like, you know, which argument do you have? All of them. (laughs) The, 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 The situation when you are on the sidelines of addiction in a romantic relationship, in any kind of close, intimate relationship, is that you're constantly cycling through your love for this person, your unbelievable desire to help them get sober, your awareness that sobriety is possible, your belief that getting sober is really the end point, even even though you may find out later it's not. But there's this game, this, this cycling of thoughts. The addict is going one step forward, two steps backwards, and so are you, because it is this whirlwind of emotion, of love and fear. How much of this can I take? This man is lying to me. That is not part of a healthy relationship. But we always attribute the behaviors, whatever we see, and our fears to the booze. So we go back even in those moments of, I don't know that I can do this. Lying is not a good quality in a marriage to this belief that if you can just get the booze out of his life, everything will be fine. But you're also living with the fears as the person on the sidelines of understanding clearly what the consequences can be. So we imagine the car crash. We imagine our kids in the car with him when it happens. We imagine him killing someone else or himself, the financial ruin, the job loss. We are in that place of back and forth, our emotions circling, our tolerance and our fears and our love, all just kind of a constant whirlwind. And it gets very confusing for people on the outside of this relationship to, if they know about it, to understand, well, why don't you just leave? What is the breaking point? And it's a really hard thing 
to stand on the outside and, and look at because you are, you literally feel that you've got a life in your hands. That if I am not there, I'm the only one keeping him tethered to sobriety. If I leave, he is going to die. This wasn't a, a factor in our family dynamic, but I, I've spoken to many people who have family members who tell the spouse, you cannot leave him. Please don't leave him because he will die. And there's that pressure. So we as the loved ones, we have the additional guilt put on our shoulders. We already feel guilty that we're not getting through to him with our words and our love and our pleading and our consequences. So then we've got family members saying, you can't leave because you're the only one keeping him somewhat tethered to whatever life. He's just going to go off the deep end if, you, if you're gone. So it's this really awful, painful cycle of guilt and fear, all mixed in with incredible love. And you said something really powerful in there, which is the dishonesty is not a side effect of drinking. Like no matter your addiction, none of the addictions innately cause lying in a person. That's a personality trait that they are lying for a specific reason, whether that's, you know, they feel very defensive about it or, you know, they know it's bad for them, whatever it is, like they're intentionally hiding this thing. Does that become something you ever overlook somewhere, you know, like I said, in the middle of all of this? Do you find like a single bottle of miniature alcohol like hidden somewhere and you're like, you know what? I got to let this one go because we're making good progress in some direction or another. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's that, that adage or that, that saying, pick your battles. And one of the things that was always in the back of my mind as I debated this issue and the ramifications of this on our marriage was, is he trying? Is he making efforts to deal with the problem. If this had been a situation where every time I brought it up, he was defensive and argumentative and basically said the hell with you, that's a different conversation. That's easier to wrap your head around the decision that this is not healthy and it's not healthy for you and you can't continue in the relationship. When you're going through the place where you understand it's hard you understand to some extent that the lying is a protective mechanism. He is lying to protect his booze because at that point in time, he loves the booze more than he loves you and he loves the booze more than he loves himself. And the lying is his, is his mechanism for making sure that the thing that he loves the most stays in his life because he is afraid of what is behind the substance. And we can kind of intellectually know that as loved ones. Emotionally is another story. And that too is the battle of what we know intellectually and what we know, what we feel emotionally. And those, those things too, those qualities are battling in us and they battle in the addict as well. The addict simply doesn't have the ability to think very clearly about the consequences of their actions. The, the substance has rewired their brain. They don't think logically. 
So when we put our logic in front of them, aren't you worried about a car crash? What if you kill someone? That's our logical brain speaking. But the addict in the moment can't put himself in that place because he believes he he can control it, that he is immune from these things. So like I said, the logic, it, it's it's so hard as a loved one to wrap your head around. Why doesn't he see what he is doing to us, to himself? He can't. And we have to find ways to put that intellectual knowledge and the emotional knowledge into some kind of framework so that as loved ones, we can get through until such point in time comes that we just either can't do it anymore or he is sober. And it's kind of that mindset of like, well, that's something that happens to other people. Other people get in car crashes when they're drunk. Other people kill other people when they're drunk. Like that's a very like dissociative mindset to say just like that can't happen to me because I'm a better person than everyone else who's ever done this. Right. And that's part of why one of the things that is done in support groups like AA is verbalizing, hi, my name is Joe and I am an alcoholic. Because in saying you're an alcoholic, you've got a problem with drinking and internalizing that you are an addict are very different things because that says I can't control it. And often that is not something an individual wants to face. My former husband certainly didn't. It would have been a a, a uh, assault to his perception of himself, an assault to his career. So it was a very, very, very long time. He may have understood sort of that there was a problem, truly internalizing that it was something he couldn't control. That was decades in the making. And kind of going back to what you said, you know, there is the emotional fight and the intellectual fight. And I have to assume, especially in a relationship this close, those are offset a bit because if it was a steady slide the whole time, like your emotions would draw back, your intellect would ramp up and it would be a very easy decision to just say like, this has to change versus, you know, having the traditional highs and lows of any relationship where you're like, we had great days, especially in the middle, like these brief periods of sobriety where it's two months without a drink and we've been having a great time and things are wonderful. Like there's a very high before, you know, a relapse before another event where you're like, Oh, he's lying to me again. We live in hope. We know that people can and do get sober. And every moment when this person that we love is showing us that he's trying, that he's going to therapy, he's going to meetings, he's having periods of sobriety that fuels our hope. And we keep on that until there's something that happens and one of us is going to break. Either we as the sober partner can't do it anymore and we come to the conclusion that nothing is going to change or this individual is just going to slide down into the worst of addiction or the addict gets sober. Some people let, or he dies. I mean, because many people go through that as well, that they just can't let go of their partner until they die. And that is a potential outcome. And that is one of the, of course, one of the huge fears. Inside 
inside an addictive relationship, or if you find you must leave, you take on that guilt of, am I going to be responsible for his death? And before you got to that break point, and I know this is a very personal question, you know, you kind of, you start to become associated with that addict where you're like, you know, this is also my life. This is, you know, my husband, my family member, whatever it is. Did you ever have to hide it from the outside public as well? I didn't have to do much of that. And that was actually part of, if you will, there a benefit to being such a high functioning addict because nobody around him other than me saw it. When we eventually told people, there was shock. They hadn't seen it because any drinking behavior really wasn't what any of us understand to be addiction. I, as I think back on that, I know that there were moments where I minimized what was going on. Did I ever go out of my way to hide? No, but I also didn't talk about it because talking about it and being vocal about, yeah, I think my honey's a drunk. That's not how I defined marital loyalty. It would have been a very damaging aspect to not only our, our marriage, but to any path, any chance he had that of, of moving into sobriety. There would have been a huge wedge there that I don't think we would have that we would have um, gotten past. So I did a lot of keeping my mouth shut. There was tremendous silence on my part um, for a whole host of reasons. And marital loyalty was certainly part of that. Well, and that's a very different situation, you know, in the high functioning alcoholic versus, you know, maybe some of your traditional alcoholic examples where it's like they're passing out and throwing up at other people's houses or, you know, they got drunk and drove their car into the front of our house. Like those are very obvious things. Yeah. And I think that would, you know, it would add to, I guess, some of the ability to reach out for support, to reach out for that intervention, whatever it is. Versus like, I have to convince these people that he is an alcoholic because they don't see it. Yeah, they're, they're part of what we're talking about here is the fact that addiction doesn't always look like the stereotype. If you are in a situation where the addiction and the inebriated behavior is really visible, there are some people who can't say the words there are some people who stay in that place and they can't talk about it. And there are others who respond with, that is just the slap in the face. I can't deny it anymore. So I, I'm not sure I was better off <laughs> or not. I, I, I know that um, it probably delayed the realization for me and certainly became more of a problem for him to understand the extent of his drinking problem because it wasn't so obvious. He could convince himself, I'm doing great at work. There can't possibly be a problem here. So in his mind, whatever he was convincing himself of and whatever I was at moments convincing myself of, it was probably a little easier to do because of the way in which he drank versus something real and obvious. and terribly ugly. And that is, that is something that happens for a lot of people. So 
at what point, you know, like you said, you're married 25 years. At what point in there did you kind of hit that breaking point where you're like, this has to change now? Like you have to get sober. This is the last day that we can continue to do this the way we're doing it. Yeah. That's another thing that is just not a linear process. I think all of us who've been on the sidelines, we go through this series of consequences. And sometimes those consequences are, you need to leave the house. It might be for a night. It might be for a week. It might be for a month. And that is a normal part of the process. But you always get back together and you think you've worked it out and he comes back and he's trying harder. And, and this is just part of the part of the cycle and part of the way consequences have to ratchet up in these situations. We don't go from, you have a drinking problem, I'm out of here. That's not, that's not a healthy relationship with someone who's got a problem. So this is a stage of it's long, it's hard, it's ups and downs, and the consequences just keep building. Um, for us, there was an incident where he was supposed to be getting on a plane to come back home. He'd been on a business trip and the person picking him up couldn't get a hold of him. I knew immediately that he was drunk. And we had, eventually when we got him on the phone, I said, if you've been drinking, don't get on the plane. I don't want to see you. He got on the plane anyway, flew back home, and I told him to leave. Pack your bags. I'm done. And it was my, you can have vodka or you can have me moment. Choose. He chose me, went to rehab, got sober. But unfortunately, while he was at rehab, um, I found out about a bunch of other things. He had a, a secret life that I didn't know about, uh, a secret sex life that I didn't know about. And that, of course, added a whole new uh, dimension to the issues. And secrets of other kinds and other bad behavior, whether it's sexual or not, is also a pretty common aspect in addictive relationships. But it just brings in a whole different kind of trust and brokenness. And ultimately, that was the part that we couldn't get through. Um, we made we made attempts, but ultimately that was the our our convoluted, um, very involved, very painful. Okay, you're sober, but now we have another issue, and uh, that's the one that's going to finally break us. And there's a weird like dichotomy to these things where you know, as he is getting better, he's trying to work through his addiction and rehab. He is, you know, becoming a healthier person, whatever the, the kind of subtext is behind that. You're like learning worse things about your partner and you're now trying to process all of that where you're like, yes, he's away getting help, but I am like just taking damage over time. Where you're like, this is not getting better for me. It's somehow getting much worse, even though this is like, this is recovery. This is what 
the end of the road is supposed to be is like this healed place. Like things are becoming significantly worse. Correct. I refer to this as the fourth stage of an addictive relationship. And it's a stage that we don't talk about often in therapy, um, the addictive uh, industry, addiction industry, all of the focus is on sobriety. And there's some vague language about um, him needing support and groups and sponsors and all those things that are part of group processing after. What they don't really talk about is you don't know each other anymore as a couple because you've only known him as an addict. He doesn't know himself not as an addict. He doesn't know me as anyone other than was trying to move him towards sobriety. So you are facing each other again in a way as if you're brand new people. There is trust that is broken. There is emotional pain that is broken. Because yes, you must deal with the ugly behavior. And there's always ugly behavior. The addict doesn't remember a lot of it. But we, we sit with the resentment. We sit with the guilt. And we have to find ways to process that too. And sometimes, like in my case, you find out really ugly stuff that was even worse than what you thought was going on. So after spending decades trying to help this person you love get sober, you got to find out it was a lot worse than you thought. And what do you do with that? So I think we also, in addition to underplaying the need for the loved ones to get some kind of help, we also have to have a better idea and better conversations about what do you do in this fourth stage of, a, of, of an addictive relationship. I don't call it the fourth stage of addiction because my focus is on the person that is the loved one. And that is whether you are, whether he is sober and you're trying to work it out, or even if you leave the relationship when he's sober or not, you still have to deal with the damage. You have guilt and regret and anger and mistrust and all of these emotions that you haven't been processing during the addictive years because you're too damn busy focusing on how do I get him sober? How do I keep my family intact? How do I keep life from not going off the rails totally because he's not doing it? How do I protect my children? And so here we are in this awful stage of shock. And, and it's not just shock in my situation because I found out so many ugly things, but there is shock and anger about how we feel because all of this stuff has to come out eventually. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of work that's underestimated in addictive relationships to think about processing and understanding perspective and each other's perspective. And you're, you're basically rebuilding or trying to rebuild a relationship either with the addict or you're trying to rebuild a relationship with yourself on your own, sometimes both. Yeah, I mean, you're you're in this, you know, fallout, for lack of a better term, like everything has kind of is settling, I should say, like there has been this colossal explosion of emotions and feelings and knowledge and everything else that's come with it. What is 
the path forward for those that are involved in this addict's life? I mean, do they need like a group therapy where like here is they're going to the retreat to the whatever it is that they're doing recovery in and uh, everyone else that knows them, we're going to meet once a week and we're going to have group therapy about how we're doing this week with that person's recovery and, and your life. Well, it's an interesting thing. Um, in my experience, a lot of the family, they really didn't want to talk about it. So even after we were open, he had come back from rehab and we were telling our children and our loved ones. And there, of course, was shock. But I asked every one of these people to to check in, ask him how he's doing. And they didn't do that. Because there is this fear that many of us have about bringing up tough subjects. So it would be nice. And I hope some people are doing that and having conversations, open conversations. If that's not something that you can do in your family, uh, yes, obviously those of us on the sidelines have support groups like Al-Anon. Some of us are part of those during the active years. Some of us continue to be part of those during this stage four. Um, individual therapists can be very helpful. I found one of the most important tools for me became journaling. I had been encouraged to journal during the heavy drinking years, but I found it too frightening to do. And I resisted that. And many people find the idea of journaling frightening. It is our most raw, vulnerable self. The stuff we wouldn't say, the stuff we think, but we would never say out loud. You know, thoughts like, I hate you today. I wish you were dead today. I wish I would, you know, all of that stuff we would never say. But it, and putting it on a page for someone else to find is the holdback. That is the fear for most of us who are afraid of journaling. I ultimately found that the traditional therapy methods for me, although they were helpful, they weren't adequate because I still had so many questions, questions my therapist couldn't answer. But I also going into therapy once a week or sitting with my sister or a girlfriend and downloading for hours over and over and over and over again, the same questions of why did he do this? Why did he do this? Why did he do this? Those weren't necessarily productive and helpful for me either. But journaling, where I could see the frequency of my questions, that was one tool that was really important to me because when you're in the middle of a trauma, we can't see how close we are to the pain. We can't see how much we've held back. We can't see how much it's really hurting us. We have to find tools. And I think that's kind of what therapy is all about, giving us a tool to distance ourselves. So journaling for me gave me that distance. It, it showed me what those questions were over and over. It made it real because I hadn't been talking about these most vulnerable things. And it helped me process and put more of a framework on trying to understand his behavior and trying to understand my own. Because a lot of the time as loved ones, like I said, we're walking away with guilt and regret, usually for the things that we didn't do. Why did I stay so long? Why didn't I speak out? There are all these things that we think we should have done, 
but we weren't ready to do along the way. In this stage four, we start to become aware and that pressure and that regret really pours down on us. And so I found the journaling really helpful for me to give me some framework to understanding what I imagined, the why behind his behavior, particularly the sexual behavior, but also my why. Why was I still here? Why had I stayed so long? Why had I been so silent? That journaling was profoundly important to my healing. There were days when I wrote, and it was just so painful even for me to read my words. I would rip a page out of the notebook and shred it. And these are tools that I think that we have to, we have to find ways to get this pain out of us. Journaling is one of them. Well, and is it, you know, journaling is a very intensive process because like you said, these things you would never say or, you know, do out loud. You're trying to like put in concrete form on paper. Is there a concern, I guess, that it is going to like reinforce some of these thoughts that aren't solidified yet, like you're going to kind of repeat, I've had this thought, you know, I hate him several times. And so you write that down several times and it becomes concrete. Or is that kind of the point? Like you're supposed to be solidifying these ideas. And the only way to do that is to see them more than once. I think the latter, I think the purpose of this is to separate what is a fleeting thought from something that is real and true. Because we all have moments in our relationships where things are tense. We aren't sure if we want to do it. But is this a moment in time or is this a pattern? And the journaling didn't convince me I hated him, but it did convince me of how much I had sacrificed. It, it showed me how empty I had become because I had set so much of myself aside in helping him get sober and how much I was setting myself aside to try to work through this new distrust, this new behavior and helped me process rather than dealing with um, something that was just two inches in front of my face because it was pain right now. So I think I was less reactive and more, more thoughtful, I guess, because I put these words down. But you're right. I mean, there is something about taking thoughts that are in, in our head and writing them down that makes them real. That is the fear, and that is also their gift. Is it one of those where it's important to you know, start each journal page. You're like, it's got to be separate from everything else. I don't want to see what I last wrote. I'm going to write this down. And then at some point, like go back and reread everything. You're like, I'm going to give myself one week of journaling where I can't see my other entries. I obviously I wrote them, so I'm going to know what's on them, but I'm not going to actively look at them until the end of the week. And then I'm going to reread everything. Or do you kind of try to like, reread things and then make your new journal page. My personal process was just instinct. 
there were days when I sat down with a journal and I was just dying to get stuff out of my heart and my head. And the pages, you know, the words would just fly. They often didn't make sense, but that's okay too. Often there were days where it was just question, why, 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 why? Because I didn't understand why. And then there were other days where I was a little less emotionally driven and I would flip back through. I think the whole point of the journal is not to think that there has to be anything firm about it. Find a process that works for you. And for many people, having something concrete, I had a very specific book. I chose a specific book because it was easy for me to hide because I had fear around my intimate thoughts being read by someone else before I was ready for that to happen. I wasn't ready for the questions yet. It was for me and for me alone. And that's true of many people. So I chose a specific book. Other people can use a voice recorder and listen to it. Other people just, like I said, they'll write it and shred it. it it's about what's going on for you at that moment in time. And by the way, I'm not talking about pretty journals with stickers and smiley faces and color coded. If you want to do that, go for it. But you know, that wasn't my purpose in it. It was just raw words and emotions, whatever I was feeling at the time. I didn't journal every day, um, but I journaled frequently. And the more I did it, the more I found release. I think would be the best word for that, a release of emotions, because there's so much pressure that we don't even know and anxiety that we're holding in our bodies that we don't even know we're holding. And little by little, as you release these words onto, onto your journal pages, you're letting go of it and you're allowing yourself some perspective. And so whatever works, change it up over time. If, if you find in the beginning you need to be protective and you loosen up, great. If you want to go back and read everything, start to finish to see how much you've healed, great. It doesn't matter. What matters is getting it out of your heart and out of your head in some fashion. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing to realize is like, you know, we've been talking about what works and a lot of it's, you know, through the frameworks of what you found that works, which is great because I think that gives people evidence that says I used it. It worked. It can work for you. But you know, some people are going to find therapy and that like, I just wrote my feelings and then I tore the page out and I took them outside and I burned them. Like, if that's your your process, then great, as long as it's helping you get through it. Like that's very important in this time where everyone is focused on the other person because of their addiction. Like, you know, you're being neglected, not because the person wants to neglect you or everyone else in your family and friends group wants to neglect you, but they're being told all of their energy needs to be on this other person's recovery. Yes. Yes, you nailed it right there. That is the important point. And, and that is the takeaway really for anybody that is on the sidelines of addiction. Don't dismiss that you are being neglected in this process, your emotions, your feelings, your pain. And that for me was what the journaling process helped me wrap my head around. And as I said, for me, that process, it changed because I was scared to death of the idea. And I had to 
find my path. And that path included a number of things. But as I was testing them all out, ultimately journaling for me became the most helpful technique. And then, you know, obviously everything came to a head, came to an end where you're like, you know what, with all these things I've learned and all the things I've, you know, learned about myself going through this, this fallout process and trying to recover for me, like this just was unsustainable. You couldn't keep going. Do you think that's kind of inevitable in some of these long-term relationships, even if it's, you know, a very close family member that you're not, I'm not married to them, you know, I'm not even living with them, but to know that they've been lying to me for, you know, two decades, like that's a pretty big breach of trust, even if it doesn't have all of the other things, obviously, that went into your relationship that I think would make this, you know, a fairly easy decision. Like, is it still kind of inevitable that that becomes like a, just a schism in your relationship where you're like, I'll be around this person, I'll be cordial with them, but I don't know that I'll ever trust them. I've come to think of love and whether this is a romantic love or a family love or a friend love as more like a dial versus an on-off switch. We can love someone and have the heat turned way down and still be in their life, even as a partner. We can exist together, but we are not, we're not what we were. We're not what we thought. And people sometimes accept that as their lot in life after some kind of traumatic situation. It does not mean your relationship is going to end or has to end but that is a personal choice people make. I don't think anybody who lives through some kind of total betrayal of trust, whether that is just a drinking or drinking with sexual behavior, ever looks at that person the same again. The question is, what can you live with in them? And what can you live with in yourself? We tried very hard to see if we could get back to that place of working through and trying to reset, rebuild, re recreate, you know, <laughs> one of the rewords, I don't know, um, have a kind of relationship again. But ultimately I came to the point where I saw that a future together was not going to ever be what it had been. We could stay together, but I would be empty the rest of my life. And that was the that was the line in the sand because I had healed enough through the process of trying to work it through to say, I deserve something better. I want something more than this. And that's a choice that individuals make, whether that is your child, whether that is your partner, whether that is a dear friend. How do we reframe the relationship with the person that has betrayed our trust? And how do we reframe our relationship with ourself? And we have to look at both parts. If we're only looking at our relationship with the person that has betrayed our trust, we haven't done all the healing. Yeah. But I don't think we ever look at them the same again. I think that's an excellent thought to leave people with because it, I think it very much encompasses, you know, all of the struggle that goes into this. And I've appreciated you sharing, you know, all of this with us. It's very personal and 
it's not the easiest thing to relive, but I wanted people to be able to find you if they're looking for more from you or if they want to buy your book. Yes, uh, you can reach out. I'm at danakillian.com. Um, all of my books are there. The book we're talking about is Where the Shadows Dance. He Got Sober, I Got Broken. It is available in any format you like, wherever books are sold, and links are available on my website. And I really, I really enjoy talking to people who have gone through or are going through this experience themselves. I believe very strongly, as I think you can tell, in our need to speak and to find our voices on this subject. So if this is you and you want to reach out, please do so. Fantastic. Well, I hope people, you know, search out you search out the book. If you pick up the book, please leave good reviews online. It's very important so that, you know, people like yourself, Dana, like you can grow and you can reach more people and more people can hear these very important messages. But, you know, again, just thank you for being here. I've appreciated your time immensely. Thank you so much for having me. This was kind of an interesting flip the script episode because coming into the conversation, I would have said you need to go above and beyond to help someone struggling with something as awful as addiction. But now I wonder if we've ever really done recovery in the right way or if we've just managed to get lucky somehow. It's been a strange month and the rankings are still shaking up day to day. Number one, the United States, desperately struggling to regain this top spot, and led back to the top by Oregon, New York, and Texas. Number two, the United Kingdom, only dropping down to second by a small margin. The UK is led by Scotland. Number three, Australia, with New South Wales leading the charge back to the top three. Number four, Ontario, Canada. Number five, India, barely holding on against some very stiff competition. That's it for this week. I hope you have a great week, and I'll see you all back here for the next episode. Until the next episode, please do all the things that help the show grow, like rating, reviewing, liking, subscribing, just telling your friends about the show. If you want, you can reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media pages if you want to reach me personally. But most importantly, stay dumb.